PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. This podcast is sponsored by Tempur-Pedic. Join Tempur-Pedic's professional program and get your free ProPack today. Free information plus free pillow with your first order, up to a $100 value. Call 800-510-8715 or send an email to professionals at T-E-M-P-U-R-P-E-D-I-C dot com. Welcome to this PTJ podcast. PTJ is the official publication of the American Physical Therapy Association. PTJ disseminates basic and applied science related to physical therapy, contributes evidence to guide clinical decision-making, and publishes scholarly perspectives from around the world. And now, your host, Donovan Stutel. Welcome to PTJ's Audio Abstracts podcast for August 2010. This month's research reports focus on the therapist-patient relationship in physical rehabilitation, adherence to clinical practice guidelines for low back pain, real-time biofeedback during gait retraining, cancer rehabilitation, aerobic fitness reference values in young people with cerebral palsy, muscle functional MRI in chronic whiplash-associated disorders, and ankle measures in older women. This month's perspective articles focus on factors affecting position matching and a phenomenological approach to ethics. First, the influence of the therapist-patient relationship on treatment outcome in physical rehabilitation, a systematic review by Amanda Hall, Dr. Paolo Ferreira, Dr. Christopher Marr, Dr. Jane Latimer, and Dr. Manuela Ferreira. This abstract is presented by Dave Corvoisier. The working alliance or collaborative bond between client and psychotherapist has been found to be related to outcome in psychotherapy. The purpose of this study was to investigate whether the working alliance is related to outcome in physical rehabilitation settings. A sensitive search of six databases identified a total of 1,600 titles. Prospective studies of patients undergoing physical rehabilitation were selected for this systematic review. The following information was extracted from each included study. Descriptive data regarding participants, interventions, and measures of alliance and outcome, as well as correlation data for alliance and outcomes. Thirteen studies, including patients with brain injury, musculoskeletal conditions, cardiac conditions, or multiple pathologies, were retrieved. Various outcomes were measured, including pain, disability, quality of life, depression, adherence, and satisfaction with treatment. The alliance was most commonly measured with the Working Alliance Inventory, which was rated by both patient and therapist during the third or fourth treatment session. The results indicate that the alliance is positively associated with 1. Treatment adherence in patients with brain injury and patients with multiple pathologies seeking physical therapy. 2. Depressive symptoms in patients with cardiac conditions and those with brain injury. 3. Treatment satisfaction in patients with musculoskeletal conditions. And 4. Physical function in geriatric patients and those with chronic low back pain. A limitation of this study was that among homogenous studies, there were insufficient reported data to allow pooling of results. From this review, The alliance between therapist and patient appears to have a positive effect on treatment outcome in physical rehabilitation settings. 
However, more research is needed to determine the strength of this association. This article has a bottom-line clinical summary. Lead author Amanda Hall is a Ph.D. candidate at the George Institute for International Health in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Sydney in Sydney, Australia. Next, adherence to clinical practice guidelines for low back pain in physical therapy. Do patients benefit? By Dr. Gert Rutten, Saskia Dagen, Dr. Eric Hendricks, Dr. Jose Braspenning, Dr. Janneke Harting, and Dr. Rob Ostendorp. Various guidelines for the management of low back pain have been developed to enhance the effectiveness and efficiency of care. However, evidence that guideline-adherent care results in better health outcomes is not conclusive. The main objective of this study was to assess whether a higher percentage of adherence to the Dutch physical and manual therapy guidelines for low back pain is related to improved outcomes. The study further explored whether this relationship differs for the individual steps of the process of care and for distinct subgroups of patients. This observational prospective cohort study took place in the Netherlands in 2005 and 2006 and included a sample of 61 private practice therapists and 145 patients. Therapists recorded the process of care and the number of treatment sessions in web-based patient files. Guideline adherence was assessed using quality indicators. Physical functioning was measured by the Dutch version of the Quebec Back Pain and Disability Scale. Average pain was measured with a visual analog scale. Relationships between the percentage of guideline adherence and outcomes of care were evaluated with regression analyses. Higher percentages of adherence were associated with fewer functional limitations and fewer treatment sessions. This study had the following limitation. The relatively small, self-selected sample might limit external validity, but it is not expected that the small sample greatly influenced the internal validity of the study. Larger samples are required to enable adequate subgroup analyses. The results indicate that higher percentages of guideline adherence are related to better improvement of physical functioning and to a lower utilization of care. A proper assessment of the relationship between the process of physical therapy care and outcomes may require a comprehensive set of process indicators to measure guideline adherence. This article has a bottom-line clinical summary and is the subject of a discussion podcast. Two e-appendixes for this article are available online. Lead author Dr. Gert Rutten is researcher, physical therapist, and manipulative physical therapist at the Scientific Institute for Quality in Healthcare, Radboud University Nijmegen Medical Center in Nijmegen, the Netherlands, and in the Department of Health Promotion and Health Education at Maastricht University in Maastricht, the Netherlands. Next, real-time kinematic, temporospatial, and kinetic biofeedback during gait retraining in patients, a systematic review by Jeremiah Tate and Dr. Claire Milner. Biofeedback has been used in rehabilitation settings for gait retraining. The purpose of this review was to summarize and synthesize the findings of studies involving real-time kinematic, temporospatial, and kinetic biofeedback. The goal was to provide a general overview of the effectiveness of these forms of biofeedback in treating gait abnormalities. Articles were identified through searches of the following databases. 
Medline, Sinol, and the Cochrane Central Register for Controlled Trials. All searches were limited to the English language and encompassed the period from 1965 to November 2007. Titles and abstracts were screened to identify studies that met the following requirements. The study included the use of kinematic, temporospatial, or kinetic biofeedback during gait training, and the population of interest showed abnormal movement patterns as a result of a pathology or injury. All articles that met the inclusion criteria were assessed by use of the methodological index for non-randomized studies. Seven articles met the inclusion criteria and were included in the review. Effect sizes were calculated for the primary outcome variables for all studies that provided enough data. Effect sizes generally suggested moderate to large treatment effects for all methods of biofeedback during practice. This study has the following limitation. Several of the studies lacked adequate randomization. Therefore, readers should exercise caution when interpreting authors' conclusions. Each biofeedback method appeared to result in moderate to large treatment effects immediately after treatment. However, it is unknown whether the effects were maintained. Future studies should ensure adequate randomization of participants, ensure implementation of motor learning concepts, include retention testing to assess the long-term success of biofeedback, and include outcome measures capable of demonstrating coordinative changes in gait and improvement in function. This article has a bottom-line clinical summary. Lead author Jeremiah Tate is a doctoral student in the Department of Exercise, Sport, and Leisure Studies at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, Tennessee. The Cancer Rehabilitation Journey, Barriers to and Facilitators of Exercise Among Patients with Cancer-Related Fatigue by Janine Blaney, Dr. Andrea Lowe-Strong, Jane Rankin, Dr. Anna Campbell, Dr. James Allen, and Dr. Jackie Gracie. Despite the evidence to support exercise as an effective management strategy for patients with cancer-related fatigue, many of the general cancer population are sedentary. This study used an exploratory, descriptive, qualitative design to explore the barriers to and facilitators of exercise among a mixed sample of patients with cancer-related fatigue. Purposive sampling methods were used to recruit patients with cancer-related fatigue who were representative of the cancer trajectory, that is, survivors of cancer and patients in palliative care who were recently diagnosed and undergoing treatment. Focus group discussions were transcribed verbatim and analyzed using a grounded theory approach. Lower-level concepts were identified and ordered into subcategories. Related subcategories then were grouped to form the main categories, which were linked to the core category. Five focus groups were conducted with 26 participants. Within the core category of the cancer rehabilitation journey were three main categories. 1. Exercise Barriers, 2. Exercise Facilitators, and 3. Motivators of Exercise. 
Exercise barriers were mainly related to treatment side effects, particularly fatigue. Fatigue was associated with additional barriers, such as physical deconditioning, social isolation, and the difficulty of making exercise a routine. Environmental factors and the timing of exercise initiation also were barriers. Exercise facilitators included an exercise program being group-based, supervised, individually tailored, and gradually progressed. Exercise motivators were related to perceived exercise benefits. Individuals with cancer-related fatigue have numerous barriers to exercise both during and following treatment. The exercise facilitators identified in this study provide solutions to these barriers and may assist with the uptake and maintenance of exercise programs. These findings will aid physical therapists in designing appropriate exercise programs for patients with cancer-related fatigue. This article has a bottom-line clinical summary. Lead author Janine Blaney is a physical therapist and a Ph.D. candidate at the Health and Rehabilitation Sciences Research Institute at the University of Ulster in Newton Abbey, United Kingdom. Next, reference values for aerobic fitness in children, adolescents, and young adults who have cerebral palsy and are ambulatory. By Dr. Olaf Bershoren, Manon Blumen, Professor Kas Krutwagen, and Dr. Tim Tucken. Very few objective data exist regarding aerobic performance in young people with cerebral palsy. The characterization of aerobic fitness could provide baseline and outcome measures for the rehabilitation of young people with cerebral palsy. The objective of this cross-sectional observational study was to provide reference values for aerobic fitness in a group of children, adolescents, and young adults who had cerebral palsy and who were classified at Gross Motor Function Classification System, GMFCS, Level 1 or 2. Data were collected with 10-meter shuttle run tests. This study was conducted between August 2008 and June 2009. Reference values were established using data from a total of 306 children, adolescents, and young adults who had cerebral palsy, who were 6 to 20 years old, and who were recruited from 26 rehabilitation centers in the Netherlands, Switzerland, Australia, Canada, and the United States. A total of 211 participants were classified at GMFCS Level 1, and 95 participants were classified at GMFCS Level 2. 181 were male, and 125 were female. Aerobic fitness was reflected by the level achieved on the 10-meter shuttle run tests. On the basis of a total of 306 assessments from the 10-meter shuttle run tests, four reference curves were created. The limitation of the study is the cross-sectional nature of the design. This study provided height-related reference values for aerobic fitness in children, adolescents, and young adults who had cerebral palsy and who were classified at GMFCS Level 1 or 2. Generalized additive models for location, scale, and shape were used to construct centile curves. These curves are clinically relevant and provide a user-friendly method for the prediction of aerobic fitness in young people with cerebral palsy. This article has a bottom-line clinical summary. Lead author Dr. Olaf Bersheren is Senior Researcher in the Center of Excellence for Rehabilitation Medicine, Utrecht, at the Rehabilitation Center de Hoogstraat. 
assistant professor in the Department of Rehabilitation at the Rudolf Magnus Institute of Neuroscience, Nursing Science, and Sports at the University Medical Center, and senior researcher and partner of NetChild, Network for Childhood Disability Research, all in Utrecht, the Netherlands. Next, use of muscle functional magnetic resonance imaging to compare cervical flexor activity between patients with whiplash-associated disorders and people who are healthy by Dr. Barbara Cagney, Mika Dolphins, Ian Peters, Dr. Eric Ochten, Dr. Dirk Combier, and Dr. Levin Daniels. Chronic whiplash-associated disorders have been shown to be associated with motor dysfunction. Increased electromyographic activity in neck and shoulder girdle muscles has been demonstrated during different tasks in participants with persistent whiplash-associated disorders. Muscle Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging MRI, is an innovative technique to evaluate muscle activity and differential recruitment of deep and superficial muscles following exercise. The purpose of this study was to compare the recruitment pattern of deep and superficial neck flexors between patients with whiplash-associated disorders and controls using muscle functional MRI. The study used a cross-sectional design. The study was conducted in a physical and rehabilitation medicine department. The participants were divided into two groups, a control group of 10 men and 9 women with a mean age of 22 years who were healthy, and an experimental group of 5 men and 11 women with a mean age of 33 years with whiplash-associated disorders. The T2 values were calculated for the longus coli, longus capitis, and sternocleidomastoid muscles at rest and following craniocervical flexion. In the overall statistical model for T2 shift, there was a significant main effect for muscle, but not for group. The muscle-by-group interaction effect was significant. Although not significant, there was a strong trend for lesser activity in the longus coli and longus capitis muscles for the whiplash-associated disorders group compared with the control group. Although the sternocleidomastoid muscle showed higher T2 shifts, this difference was not significant. Although muscle functional MRI is an innovative and useful technique for the evaluation of deep cervical muscles, consideration is required as this method encompasses a post-exercise evaluation and is limited to resistance types of exercises. Muscle functional MRI demonstrated a difference in muscle recruitment between the longus coli, longus capitis, and sternocleidomastoid muscles tested during craniocervical flexion in the control group, but failed to demonstrate a changed activity pattern in the group with whiplash-associated disorders compared with the control group. The mild symptoms in the group with whiplash-associated disorders and the wide variability in T2 values may explain the lack of significance. Lead author Dr. Barbara Cagney is postdoctoral researcher for the research foundation Flanders and is affiliated with the Department of Rehabilitation Sciences and Physiotherapy at Ghent University in Ghent, Belgium. Reliability of Ankle Isometric 
Isotonic and Isokinetic Strength and Power Testing in Older Women by Sandra Weber and Dr. Michelle Porter. Ankle strength and power capabilities influence physical function such as walking and balance in older adults. Although strength and power parameters frequently are measured with dynamometers, few studies have examined the reliability of measurements of different types of contractions. The purpose of this prospective, descriptive methodological study was to examine relative and absolute intra-rater reliability of isometric, isotonic, and isokinetic ankle measures in older women. Thirty older women with a mean age of 73 years were examined twice, seven days apart, by the same examiner. The following dorsiflexion and plantar flexion measures were assessed. Isometric peak torque and rate of torque development. Isotonic peak velocity. Average acceleration and peak power. And isokinetic peak torque and peak power. Several statistical methods were used to examine relative and absolute reliability. Intraclass correlation coefficients for the dorsiflexion tests were generally higher than the intraclass correlation coefficients for matched plantar flexion tests. Measures of absolute reliability also demonstrated more reliable values for dorsiflexion tests compared with plantar flexion tests. Isotonic peak velocity tests at minimal loads were associated with the lowest coefficient of variation of the typical error and ratio limits of agreement values for both the dorsiflexion and the plantar flexion measures. Isometric rate of torque development variables were the least reliable. This study was limited to a relatively homogeneous sample of older women. Test-retest reliability was adequate for determining changes at the group level for all strength and power variables except isometric rate of torque development. Minimal detectable change scores were determined to assist clinicians in assessing meaningful change over time in ankle strength and power measurements within individuals. Lead author Sandra Weber is a Ph.D. candidate in the Department of Physiology, Faculty of Medicine at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg, Canada. Our first perspective article is Proprioceptive Acuity Assessment via Joint Position Matching from Basic Science to General Practice by Dr. Daniel Goebel. Over the past several decades, studies of use-dependent plasticity have demonstrated a critical role for proprioceptive feedback in the reorganization and subsequent recovery of neuromotor systems. As such, an increasing emphasis has been placed on tests of proprioceptive acuity in both the clinic and the laboratory. One test that has garnered particular interest is joint position matching whereby individuals must replicate a reference joint angle in the absence of vision, that is, using proprioceptive information. On the surface, this test might seem straightforward in nature. However, this perspective article informs therapists and researchers alike of multiple insights gained from a recent series of position-matching studies by Dr. Goebel and colleagues. In particular, five factors are outlined that can assist clinicians in developing well-informed opinions regarding the outcomes of tests of position-matching abilities. This information should allow for enhanced diagnosis of proprioceptive deficits within clinical settings in the future. 
A video of the basic experimental setup accompanies this article online. Dr. Daniel Goebel is Fellow for the Canadian Institutes for Health Research, Institutes of Aging, housed in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Last this month, Understanding the Lived Experiences of Patients, the Application of a Phenomenological Approach to Ethics, by Dr. Bruce Greenfield and Dr. Gail Jensen. This perspective article provides a justification with an overview of the use of phenomenological inquiry and the interpretation into the everyday ethical concerns of patients with disabilities. Disability is explored as a transformative process that involves physical, cognitive, and moral changes. This perspective article discusses the advantages of phenomenology to supplement and enhance the principalist process of ethical decision-making that guides much of contemporary medical practice, including physical therapy. A phenomenological approach provides a more contextual approach to ethical decision-making through probing, uncovering, and interpreting the meanings of patients' stories. This approach, in turn, provides for a more coherent and genuine application of ethical principles within the textured life world of patients and their evolving values as they grapple with disability to make ethical and clinical decisions. The article begins with an in-depth discussion of the current literature about the phenomenology of people with disability. This literature review is followed by a discussion of the traditional principalist approach to making ethical decisions which is followed by a discussion of phenomenology and its tools for use in clinical inquiry and interpretation of the experiences of patients with disabilities. A specific case is presented that illustrates specific tools of phenomenology to uncover the moral context of disability from the perspective of patients. The article concludes with a discussion of clinical educational and research implications of a phenomenological approach to ethics and clinical decision-making. This article is the subject of an invited commentary by Dr. Laura Lee Swisher. Lead author Dr. Bruce Greenfield is Assistant Professor in the Division of Physical Therapy, Department of Rehabilitation, at the Emory University School of Medicine, and is affiliated faculty at the Center for Ethics at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. We always appreciate your feedback. You can email ptj at scienceaudio.net or leave a voicemail at 626-593-7825.